Yay, Patriot. Oh, okay. For those of you who are Patriots, that was kind of I, okay. You've seen that one before. Okay. The the uh, we're coming up with a few, a couple of more before the end of the series. Um, and uh, so, just a reminder that we are part of this series, and uh, um, we're going to be talking about what it means to be good for the world. I'm Pastor Tom. It's great for, for me to be here and for us to be here together uh, this day. Um, I'm not like Brian today. I don't look exactly like him since I don't have facial hair. You know, you notice that most of the staff has facial hair now, and I, being Asian, I just can't, just doesn't work as well for me. Um, but uh, this week, it has been a difficult week, you know. Uh, many of us have been watching the news and things, and, and early in the week there was the Manchester uh, bombing, um, you know, that uh, many people were hurt, killed uh, in Manchester, England, after Ariana Grande concert. Um, then, of course, just a couple days ago, um, the 24 um, brothers and sisters of the Egyptian Coptics uh, were ambushed in a bus uh, south of Cairo, uh, and they were executed, um, some 24 uh, of our brothers and sisters. Um, and so we come, and it's a heavy time. Um, even last week, uh, there was a terrible um, incident where a man in Worcester uh, was, uh, was walking to his car at 11 o'clock at night. Uh, he was hit on the head from behind. Um, and struck and beaten and then robbed and then left there on the street. Um, and then f five minutes later, a group of passers-by came by, and instead of helping him, they robbed him again. They went through all his stuff, and they took out his car keys, went into his car, and took all this stuff from his car. And so talk about the reverse of the Good Samaritans. You know, these folks... Um, it was just terrible. And so these are the kind of things that have been happening. And yet there's been glimmers of hope as well. Some of us have watched, um, there's this incident in the South End recently um, of, of a woman, this woman, um, Azalea, I think her name was, a uh, young woman, she was standing at the subway station, uh, underground stop, it was warm that day, and she f had a, uh, felt really hot, took a sip of water, all of a sudden she blacked out. She fainted and landed on the train track. She landed on the train track, and the m train was one minute away. The train was one minute away. And so what happens is that the people who watched this were willing to risk their lives and were good Samaritans to jump down into the train, oncoming train tracks um, and bring her back up uh, before, you know, the train arrived. Good thing that, you know, not, no, one, no one was hurt or anything like that. So there are moments when there are good Samaritans. Uh, around. And when we see something that's very physical, very in front of our face, oftentimes people do respond well. But sometimes we don't because we don't see what's going on. And today we're going to talk about how this is a constant struggle for us. Some of us feel overwhelmed. And, we, and, and honestly, this passage has really both encouraged me and, and challenged me, but also um, made me sad because it's so overwhelming sometimes. When we talk about being good Samaritans, sometimes we broaden that so much and it feels like all people, all places, everywhere at all times that we need to be good neighbors and good Samaritans. And we use that term, right? We use it in, um, you know, uh, when we think about hospitals, there's a good Samaritan hospitals. There are the, the, the people who rescue people on the highway. There are good Samaritan ministries that go like that. And, so, you know, those kind of things sometimes feel overwhelming. But today, as we've been studying this, and I've been studying this, um, it's been a real encouragement that this week uh, uh, give a, a, a kind of a paradigm to think about what it means to be a good neighbor. A paradigm that might be helpful for us to think about what does it mean, who is our neighbor, and how can we reasonably be good neighbors to other 
folks around us. Okay, so that's what we talk about. Who is our neighbor and how can we uh, be good neighbors in a reasonable way? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We do continue to pray for those in the world who are grieving uh, significant hardship and difficulty and loss. And we pray that you grant us encouragement and strength this day, that we might become your people, that we might become your hands and your feet, that we might become uh, good neighbors, good Samaritans. Uh, we pray by your power, by your grace. In Jesus we pray. Amen. As we start the series, uh, this message is a reminder that we are in the uh, one, two, three, the third of our series here. And so the first we talked about how we are to be, we're on this series for the good of the world. And we start with the good of our hearts, right? The heart in the middle. So the good of our hearts. Um, and as we talked about that, how we talked about how our character matters. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the spirit. And Pastor Brian showed us that. Um, also in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we talked about how we're uh, for the good of the family. And we talked about how the, um, the daily routines of table talk is something that we really want to encourage us to do. Instead of watching TV or letting people you know, encouraging uh, other things that we focus on significant conversations around the dinner table. Um, and today we're going to be talking about um, good for the neighborhood or good for the hood, depending on your context. I, I don't use hood very well, so it's neighborhood for me. Um, but for your context, whatever. Uh, and also uh, next week we'll be talking about good for the good of work. Okay, and then uh, after that, the good of the earth, and then the good of the nations. And so that will be round out our series as we begin and prepare uh, to become a church that is not just attractional, come and see, but a church that really wants to go and do, that we are part of what God is doing in the world, his hands, his feet. So we're going to start um, this morning uh, and just talk a little bit about what it means to be um, God's uh, we call it faithful presence in these different things. This book that I have, that I've been reading, I don't have it, I'll put it on the screen, um, Faithful Presence uh, by David Finch. He says, faithful presence, excuse me, faithful presence names the reality that God is present in the world, that he uses people faithful to his presence to make himself concrete and real amid the, the, the world's, apostrophe S, struggle and pain. When the church is this faithful presence, God's kingdom becomes visible, and the world is invited to join with God. Faithful presence is not only essential for our lives as Christians, it's also God, it's how God has chosen to change the world. Faithful presence. talks about seven practices. Many of them were, you know, woven into what we were talking about these last few weeks. And so as we think about faithful presence, this um, Finch suggests that there's three circles there are three circles of influence that we have that we can think about them together. The first circle um, is, um, the, the first circle he calls the close circle, close, close, close and proximate circle. This is the circle that uh, is the presence of Jesus among us as committed Christ followers in the church. And so when we're gathered together, we're gathered together as those who are committed to following him, to becoming more like him, uh, uh, learning to be his people, being transformed in our character and our being and our fellowship. That's the close circle, okay, represented by sort of communion elements, right? That's what that is, the communion elements of the, of the cup and the bread. Um, the next circle, he suggests, is the dotted circle, the dotted circle. That is, when we're in our homes and we're in our neighborhoods, you know, that we are there, the presence of Jesus is among us as we're with our neighbors and strangers in our homes. We're inviting them into this kind of sacred space in our homes, 
you know, kind of thing. But it's dotted because it's very fluid. We want people to come in to join us in those kind of spaces. And finally, the third circle, he suggests, is called a half circle. We're half in, half out, because what we're doing is we're really going out into the world, the presence of Jesus among us as we interact with others in the world. And we're going to focus on interact with others and particularly the least of these. Particularly the least of these. And that's what we'll talk about uh, in a moment. So let me think, that's a paradigm, I think, for us to help think about what it looks like to be a good neighbor. Okay? So in this first thing, I want to suggest that this uh, closed circle, we can... I should have been a kindergarten teacher because I like drawing stuff. Okay, kindergarten teacher. Closed circle, dotted circle, half circle. So in the closed circle, how does it work that we are... There's supposed to be a loaf of bread. Okay, my bread is not that good. Um, okay, the goblet and the bread. Got it? So what does it mean for us to be in, in the closed circle? Or closed circle. Sorry, closed circle. Let me suggest that one way to think about that is as we are here among committed believers, I'm going to call this our spiritual neighbors. I can't spell neighbor. I keep inverting the... Okay, spiritual or believing neighbors. Why do I say that? Because although, look, look at the passage. This passage that we'll be looking at today um, is very familiar, right? Because in um, Luke chapter uh, 10, what we see in Luke chapter 10 is that Jesus is uh, uh, talking to a, a Pharisee or a, a lawyer uh, of the law, and he asks the question, um, you know, how does he inherit uh, eternal life? And in verse 27, 1027, Jesus said, uh, the lawyer says to him in return, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. We know that that is called the greatest commandment, right? And the second greatest commandment from other scriptures. We also know that it comes from the Old Testament scriptures in um, the first part of that um, is what Pastor Brian taught last week, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema. The Shema was the prayer that was prayed five times a day by the people of Israel. Devout Jewish folks prayed that five times a day in um, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so they would pray that. And then also to summarize um, how we were to interact not only vertically but also horizontally with each other, um, they would quote uh, Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18, uh, especially the second half, but love your neighbor as yourself for I am the Lord. And so this kind of encapsulates what the people of Israel understood. That was, that was not Jesus' um, unique teaching. That's something people understood that that kind of summarized our obligation to God and to one another. But many times if you read Leviticus chapter 19, you recognize that that is in the context of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, the Jewish laws, the Jewish relationships with each other. In a Jewish village, in a Jewish family, all these things would happen and they would take care of each other. And you would read that the Ten Commandments are summarized there in Leviticus chapter 19. Or not summarized, expanded upon in Leviticus 19. And so you understand that the people who read that oftentimes thought, ah, this means that we are to love our family and our Jewish kin this way. Okay? Now there's a legitimate understanding of that. And certainly, even in the New Testament, we see that there are a number of commands that remind us that the people of God need indeed to take care of the people of God. That being a good neighbor, being a good spiritual neighbor, means to take care of each other. We see in the next slide. 
We see John chapter 13, for instance. A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, says Jesus. So you must love one another. By this, everyone, that's everyone else, will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Right? So a clear injunction to take care and to, to love each other as Christ followers. Galatians chapter 6, 9. Uh, Let us not become weary of doing good, for at the po proper time we will, be, uh, will reap the harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially, especially those who are, belong to the family of believers, right? So do good to all people, and don't stop doing good, but especially to those who are uh, God's people, says the Apostle Paul. Um, John, again, later in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, I guess 3 16s make a lot of difference, right? Um, and this is how we know that we love, that what, excuse me, love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Right? The injunctions are there in Scripture that to love our neighbor certainly, certainly includes, if not only emphasizes, that the fact that we are brothers and sisters to each other. The scriptures are, um, the New Testament scriptures oftentimes refer to Jesus as talking, as praying, and referring to God as what? God the Father, right? And often he, his prayers are our Father who art in heaven, meaning that those of his who are Christ followers become brothers and sisters in the Lord because we are siblings to our Father who is in heaven. Is that right? The New Testament scriptures continue to use that language throughout um, you know, the New Testament as it expands understanding that those who, us who are Christ followers become the new family of God. They were brothers and sisters to each other, and thus we should talk, speak and talk, interact with each other as kin, as family to each other. Kinship, that we belong to each other. That word for brother in Greek, adelphos, has the the root meaning, which means of the same womb. We are of the same womb as each other. The Spirit has born us again, birthed us to be born again, you know, so that we would be those who belong to each other, so we need to act that way. Um, the next passage um, reminds us, the Apostle Paul says, um, that Jesus became poor for us in verse 9 and 13. Uh, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. So in, in this passage, it talks about how the Apostle Paul is uh, taking a collection among the Corinthians in the north all right, of the empire who are primarily Gentiles in order to care for those who are suffering famine in Jerusalem who are primarily um, Jewish. right? And so here, the idea that it expands uh, beyond our ethnic, geographic you know, uh, understanding of what it means to be truly kin. To be truly kin and to be brothers and sisters in the Lord means that we treat each other like blood relatives. Yeah? Blood relatives because we are united by the blood of Christ. And so we, we know that. Many of us understand that. And as we begin to say that, um, we're reminded that our brothers and sisters around the world experience this very distinctly. Yes? Um, we have uh, friends who are um, we're, uh, ambassadors. Uh, with a small a, ambassadors, um, used to be called missionaries, can't use that word anymore, um, 
in North Africa, in Morocco. And as they ministered and cared for people, people started to come to Christ. But as soon as people came to Christ, what would happen in that primarily Muslim um, Islamic society? Once they came to faith in Jesus, it was very costly for them. They came and, like, uh, we have newsletters about this man named Peter and his wife. When they became Christ followers in Europe, they were ostracized from their families back in Morocco. They would not receive them anymore into their homes. They would not deal with them in terms of business. They would have to start all over again in terms of the entire social network, right? And the wife was actually even beaten by her older brother for actually converting to Christianity. You see, in that time and space and there, um, in many places around the world, even today, when you come to Christ, you recognize you're moving from one society to another society, a totally different kind of uh, 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 relational reality that you become brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, you know, our, our friends brought them into their household and really helped them retrain in terms of uh, uh, job training and things like that, helped them start a new business and really cared for them holistically. Okay, this is what it means for us to be those who are Christ followers. As we look upon each other, we know that we're of the same womb, that we're the same and that we need to care for each other as we would. I feel like um, oftentimes, you know, as, as someone who's grown up in an, an Asian home, we, we care a lot for the people who are, you know, biologically connected to us. For some reason, you know, uh, you know our, our immediate family is really, really important. Our extended family is really, really important. Even those who get married into the family are really important. We'll do anything for them. There's very, a lot of reciprocity and things like that, but um, when, when I talk to some of my elders, they say, well, you know, as long as they're part of the Lee Chin clan, they're good. We're, you know, we're going to take care of them. No matter what, we're going to take care of them. But if they're not one of us, then, you know, that's someone else's business, right? Our village is this. And if you're not part of our village, then you're not really one of us. Now, that's not how we as Christ followers I have to think, right? We are those who are part and parcel of being the family of God to each other. And so when we minister and we care and we extend hospitality to each other, it is not based on socioeconomics, it's not based on uh, ethnicity, it's not based on all these other things that the world sees, our ability to repay and reciprocate. It is based on the fear fact that we are of the same womb. I'm so encouraged, you know, many of us here at East Lexington, we, we benefit because hospitality is extended. And um, I'm going to, you guys know Pastor Dave? It, you know, Pastor Dave is the, the, uh, the campus pastor in Lexington. He, we, I call them ripperisms because he always comes up with these cool words. And this is a ripperism, okay? I didn't come up with it. I think it's good. When you decide that you are going to be motivated by the gospel and extend hospitality to people, it's gospel hospitality, right? Or it's gospitality. I'm not sure how to spell that. But anyway, it's gospitality. We are those who are needing to extend gospitality to each other. That means I'm encouraged when the McCalmonts right here, when Joan and her family hosts our youth group every other week. You know how you know, energy it takes to host a youth group every other week? You know, in their, in their house, okay, there's like 20, 30 people there, and we're just pounding food and hanging around and messing with their dog and all that stuff. Um, 
and, and Doug too. But anyway, <clears throat> you know, and not only that, they host the, um, the, their life community group as well. And, you know, so it's, it's hospitality. That's hospitality. Uh, when, when Chester and Ruth minister and care and, and welcome missionaries to spend a whole summer with them, 24-7 for the whole summer, that's hospitality, right? When we are extending um, God's grace and, 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 and resources to those who are blood relatives in Christ, that is the gospel in action, hospitality. You and I, we can spend time, we need to know each other well enough that we know where our hurts and needs are even among us. Some of us in this room are needing employment help, are needing health you know, consultations, are needing um, you know, a place to stay. We, God has blessed us that we might be a blessing to each other. Right? Part of why we're here is that we might be a blessing to each other to be the family of God together. Okay? Gospitality in and with our spiritual brothers and sisters. If you have a big home, maybe God has given you a big home to be hospitable. Well, that's my word. I just came up with that just now. Okay. Not as good as Dit Ripper. Okay. Um, so the first is that we are going to be in the close circle. Yes? The second is that we're in the, where's my red? Oh, there it is. Um, the dotted circle. The dotted circle. And the dotted circle is basically us being in our homes where Christ is reigning. Woo-hoo. Okay, and little guys, you know, you get, you get the picture. You get the picture. I don't want to be sexist, but I'm going to give girls long hair. Okay. Um. When we are in our homes and we are being those who are truly great, not just good, great neighbors. I want you to think about that. In this other book called um, The Art of, um, can you pull that up? The, the Art of Neighboring, um, this fellow, his name is uh, Dave Runyon, uh, and his uh, co-author were doing this thing. These are 20 lead pastors in Denver lead pastors, so they lead churches in Denver. They got together and they said, well, how can we be the church, you know, in this city? So 20 of them, lead pastors in Denver, got together, and they started to interview all these different city officials, civic leaders, and so on and so forth. What are the major issues? What is your vision for the city? How can we be a part of it? Okay, they're just doing this on and on. And one of the people that they interviewed was the person, her name is Valerie. She, you know, she was kind of skeptical, and she says, you know, I've been the city planner for 13 years, and you know what? All these 500 or so churches, I don't see any difference that they're making. Zero. There's no difference between a neighborhood that has a church and a neighborhood that doesn't have a church. Zero. Later, they had other interviews, other people. They interviewed the mayor of Denver. And after he went through his litany of lists and, you know, all the things that could happen, he said, you know what? I've been thinking about this. As he left, he said, I would challenge you. I'd love to see a neighboring movement. He said, oh, we have tons of programs. We have tons of programs in the city. A program for this, a program for that, for the poor, for the hungry, for the needy, for the elders, snow removal, blah, 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 blah. But you know what? We don't have relationships anymore. We lack relationships. And he thought to himself, Dave thought to himself, that's so true. Because think about how society has changed so much recently. So much that we don't know our neighbors. If we, we, we grew up sort of in an area, 
it, you know, we all knew our neighbors, played with our neighbors and all these things, but now, you know, we, it's more mobile, people focus on their Facebook friends more than their physical neighbors, right? We know more, I know more about some of my friends who I haven't seen in 25 years because I found them on Facebook, right? And they, they ding on my thingy, my, my friend Chris, I haven't seen him in 20 years, but I know that he's, you know, working for this company. I know how many kids he has. I know what rewards he's getting in this company, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I don't, like, who's sleeping next to me, like, 30 feet away? Oh, I don't know. So this, these guys said, let's try, and let's see what God would do if we actually, and he said, and, and, and the irony, of course, is that it took a mayor of a city, a secular mayor of the city, to tell 20 lead pastors what Jesus has already said and always said, right? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Jesus repeated that. But it took a, a mayor to remind you, all these guys, what does that mean? And how do you exegete that? He said, who's our neighbor? Well, I, I think that, you know, the word neighbor means person next door, nearby, right? Literally. In the Greek, yes, it means the guy next to you. And he said, what would happen if we actually encouraged everybody in our congregation to do that? To get to know and to be a great neighbor to one another. So I'm going to ask um, Scott, where's Scott? Scott to, and, and some helpers to, to pass these out, because this is what they did. What they did was they, and, and oh, sorry, I should fill this out. I want to say immediate neighbor. Woo, I can't spell. What you have is this. Who is my neighbor? Think of yourself. Your house or your apartment is right here. I want you... And this is what they did. They challenged each of their congregation members, okay, out of 20 congregations. Um, they realized there are 8,000 households, right, 20,000 people that they affected, and they asked them, do this. Your house is here. Put your, put, your, put, put your address right here somewhere on this page, okay? Put your address right here. Now, list the names of all your neighbors who are, you know, across the street, next to you, Behind you, you know, or, or if you could change it a little bit, you, you're here and you could do this way. Whichever, the eight closest neighbors to you, or your apartment, or, you know, whatever, okay? Who are they? Here you are, who they are, okay? And they said, that's step one, even knowing their name. Guess what? So the idea was to get to know their names. Let me uh, slide one more slide. So that we would get to know their names, so we move from stranger to acquaintance to relationships. And how do we do that? Next slide. We do that by understanding their names, understanding something about them that you have to know by talking to them, not stalking them on Facebook. Okay, talking to them, and then finally beginning to understand what their hopes and dreams are, and maybe or maybe some of their disappointments. Okay, having a, a deeper conversation. Does that make sense? And then moving from acquaintance, so that becomes your acquaintance, then moving to acquaintance and maybe even spending some time with them in the front yard. See, most people spend all their time in their backyards. 
What happens in the backyard? You're, again, you're fenced in. No one sees you. You're in the back. You're by yourself, right? They start encouraging people to spend time in their front yards. If you're in an apartment building, that means in the lobbies, right? And, you know, things like that. You, you're spending time with folks as they're walking by. They're walking their dog. They're going for their evening walks. And you get to know them. You stop them. You say, actually say, hey, how are you? What's your name? What do you do? What, you know, all these kind of things. And over time, you become a real neighbor. And then they suggested really starting to organize to have block parties. That you're not just creating relationships with yourself and your neighbors, but you're actually helping to create network of relationships among your neighbors, you know, for a whole block or two. And what happens is that they started to do that. So they affected their 20 congregations, which was 8,000 families or, or, or homes, which is representing 20,000 people. Okay? And what happens is that the year after they did another 50 congregations or added 30 more, and eventually they realized they were affecting some 200,000 people if you do the households and all their neighbors. And guess what? That second year, that skeptic Valerie who works in the city, she sent an email. She sent an email. And I don't have it with me. It's in my other thing. She sent an email. Basically, it says, I've been a, a, a city planner for 13 years. And this is the first year that we've not gotten a single request for snow removal of someone's driveway. And he says, and then she says, I'm not, I don't know for sure whether this is because of the neighboring movement, but I thought you'd be encouraged. What happens when we start, see, this is the shalom of the city. We talked about that, right? The peace of the city. When we seek the peace of the city and start building neighborhoods again, we start building neighborhoods, good things happen when people care for each other, right? People will start watching out for each other. That's why neighborhood watches are, you know, helpful for prevention of crime. That's why, you know, uh, elders are taken care of organically. They don't have to do, always do wheels for Meals for wheels or whatever, right? Because we have people who are caring for them. We, you know, uh, driveways are being cleared. Kids are being taken care of and walked to school. All these things, things that you oftentimes pay for because you don't have an extended family in the area. And what we do is we start to say, look, what would happen if God were to start a network of neighbors? And what if all the churches got together that we would start making a whole community a city of good neighbors. Wow. Wow. We had an opportunity in our neighborhood. We've lived in our neighborhood for 20 years now. And over the years, we got to know the couple that was next door for many years, Jean and Elsie. And they didn't have um, children nearby. And so what we did was we started hanging out with them a little. And uh, they kind of really liked our kids for some reason, even though they were rambunctious boys. Uh, <coughs> They had the notorious, <clears throat> they were notorious in our neighborhood before we got there for taking all the balls that landed in their yard. You know that couple? <laughs> taking, not returning, taking, holding all these balls that landed in their yard. And so they were not, like, known to be the nicest people. For some reason, they warmed up to us. And eventually, we invited them to our house. We helped shovel their snow sometimes and so on and so forth. And we spent time with them. And they kind of became sort of this informal elder couple around us, you know, whatever. And uh, what was cool is that when um, Jean passed, I was able to, you know, 
I, I was able to go visit him in the nursing home uh, before he passed in the nursing home and then, you know, uh, visit him uh, and then conduct his funeral. You know, I was the one that they asked to officiate his funeral. Um, and then when Elsie got older and, you know, she was trying to figure out what to do, I helped, you know, find a nursing place for her. She never actually moved in. She um, got sick and then we uh, brought her home and she passed in her home. But I was there to, to read scripture to her, to minister to her. And, I, you know, she said she was a, a Christ follower when she was a little. You know, so I don't know what that means. All I know is that we tried to minister and to care for them as real people, not just, you know, the people who happen to live next door. So we have opportunities when we extend real relationships and begin to make this a priority. And it says, well, Pastor Tom, I don't have the time. I don't have the time to be a good neighbor. Yeah, I'm running my kids here and there. My job is a mess, my career, you know, all these kind of things. And the church is always demanding all these kind of things that, well, they really encourage their people to make being a great neighbor a priority. And saying maybe some of us have to cut back in some of these other things. The author has this cool story. He says, you know, he was a, uh, he was a baseball player himself. And so when his boys got old enough to play baseball, he became a coach, you know, kind of thing. And when he became a coach, he just wanted his kids to have the most opportunity that they could. And so he signed them up for all the, you know, the most competitive leagues. And you know how that goes. The more competitive you are, the more time it takes to practice and the further you go for games. That's just how it works, right? We have three boys, we know. And, and what happens is he said, we, have to, we had to decide. Either I was going to keep coaching this really competitive league and just keep pushing my boys to keep doing more and more competitive stuff, or we're going to choose another league which was much more casual, but it was much more local. And we started, and he said, we chose the latter. Because my boys are probably not going to be professional baseball players anyway. You kind of knew that. He kind of sensed that. You know, maybe yours is a superstar. But his was like, you know, they're average, above average. But they weren't going to be, you know, whatever, NLB. And so he said, you know, we're just going to choose the more local one. He being coached there and invested time and energy in those relationships. And he had the time and the space in those relationships and also in the relationships around his own neighborhood because he wasn't, you know, pursuing that ultimate baseball dream, you know, kind of thing. So whether it's academics or it's baseball or it's dance or it's culture, whatever it is, we need to ask, what is God calling us to do? Are we driven by this kind of, you know, drive to do more and better just because we have the opportunity or because God calls us to be a real, actual neighbor. So the paradigm continues, right? We have the close circle. We have the dotted circle. Oh, before I forget, what's really cool about this and what really encouraged my heart is that for many years, you know, um, in my previous church, we were a suburban church and we never really figured out how to become more than sort of a, 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 a Christian ghetto. We really tried, to, you know, to think about, well, we're well, going to do these programs here, programs there, and, you know, try to do these one-off things, and it just never really felt that we were part of the community because many of us didn't live in the community and stuff like that. But let me suggest that as we go, this paradigm helps us because, one, many of us are more local, and, two, it makes it organic, relational. 
organic and relational how we minister to people. It's not just about programs. In this book and other books, it says relationships and kinships trump programs all the time. In effectiveness, right, in care. When we minister and we start treating people and we, as friends and not just as recipients of a program, then good things really happen. Good things really happen. And I'm excited because maybe, as we go to the next slide, maybe we, East Lexington and maybe Grace Chapel, um, no, so we go, there's one on Alpha. Is there one on Alpha? Yeah. So, you know, we could actually be those who are inviting people. My dream would be to do something like, hey, in our Bible study group, our life community group, that we would take a season and just say, we're going to do something that's just for the neighborhood. And maybe in our neighbors. And maybe it would be something like what we just did. We did a Friday, a Thursday night, um, the marriage course. And what's been a blessing to me being part of the marriage course, which is the next slide, um, is that uh, we had all these people, and we had like 65, 55 couples signed up in Lexington, and we set up these, these tables, these, these kind of TV tables and chairs um, by there. Some of us are in this room or in that thing. Um, and it's been a wonderful opportunity just to be caring for people who just want to work on their marriages, want to work on their partnerships. They don't have to be Christ followers. We're just trying to build them up. They've, well, obviously, we have opportunities for them to come and see, but... Wouldn't it be great if this happened in our homes? They would just come, hey, you know, four or five couples get together and say, hey, do you guys want to work on your marriages? Let's just watch this video thing together. We're going to provide this kind of date night kind of thing. You don't have to reveal your deepest, darkest issues with anybody else in the room. It's just the two of you, and then afterwards we have a little coffee, you know, tea or whatever. Something like that, or something around parenting, or something around, you know, um, uh, gender or race. You know, something like that that would be a, a general uh, positive for our community. And it's not just about getting people to come to church. It's just about building into other people. Wouldn't it be great if we became known as the church or the campus that just cared enough for people to just do what's good for them in whatever felt need that they have? They're having trouble in their marriages. Hey, we can come alongside and help. You don't have to come to our church. We're just going to do that because we love you. We care for you. Jesus would do that. You're having trouble with parenting. We have some stuff. You can think about that. We have stuff, you know, thinking about all these other issues. Let us be those who are giving to our neighbors a vision for what we could be doing together. The final circle, and we're running out of time, the final circle is going to suggest that uh, we call that the he calls that the half circle. The half circle. And the half circle, I'm just going to put a cup of coffee here. Woohoo! On a plate. In a awning that represents being out in the community. Okay? But I'm going to suggest that this is not just um, to all neighbors, but especially, ooh, ESP, especially the least of these. Right? That's language from Matthew 25, right? The least of these. When we read math, um, Luke chapter 10, really what most people think about is the Good Samaritan. In the context of the Good Samaritan, what we see is that the Good Samaritan cares for this person who's not Jewish, right? He doesn't look affluent, certainly, when he's beat up. 
He's certainly not a person that you would naturally, you know, interact with because he's, uh, he's Samaritan, he's an enemy, uh, he's a half-breed, all these kind of things. Not a person that you would usually think about. And, but what he does do, he does all these things. And he came, he saw, right, the priest walks by, he's a Jewish priest, he's got religious stuff he's got to do. Busy. The Levite walks by, he's got stuff also at the temple he's probably going to do. He, they don't want to get soiled, they don't want to get um, unclean, ceremonial perhaps. They're too busy. Um, they're all these kind of things. Um, and what happens? Back one slide. Oh, sorry. You're, you're, oh, very good, Matt. Thanks. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, he took pity on him versus what the, the other, other leaders did. He went, he band-aid, he poured oil, he put you know, him on the donkey, he brought him to the inn, he took care of him, and then he actually sponsored him to Denary, and then he also said, you know, um, he'll reimburse the innkeeper. So all these things is proactive for the least of these. For the least of these. I want to suggest that we have opportunities also to minister, not just to our local neighbors, but also to those who are particularly hurt and out and broken um, and lost. And what happens is that we have opportunities to do that. Matthew 25 reminds us, and I know this is, passage is controversial sometimes, um, but then the, you know, the passage of the, the final judgment, Jesus is reminding people, um, then, the, sorry, then the king will say to those in the right, on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you uh, since the creation of the world. And he's talking to the sheep, right, the faithful. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Next slide. The king will truly say, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of these least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And I love Mother Teresa. According to this verse, she always calls this Jesus' distressing disguise. That the least of these is actually Jesus himself. That when we're ministering to people who are down and out, who have all these needs in the previous slide, in the previous slide, keep the previous slide up, yeah. Um, when we're ministering to folks of, of this situation, that Jesus is actually present, right? When Mother Teresa was asked, why is it and how is it that you can continue to meet and care for these down and outers in Calcutta day in and day out for 40, 50, 60 years, she said, because when I minister to them, I reminded that that's what Jesus said, that I'm ministering to Jesus himself. To the least of these. And when we do that, we have opportunities to experience that more deeply. Um, the author of... Um, the President's book, um, suggests that the early church in the first three centuries took that literally. Literally, they believed that as they were ministering to the poor, the outcast, the stranger, the prisoner, that they were actually physically meeting the needs of Jesus. And that it was a sacrament to do so. It wasn't just, and they say, only after, you know, Christianity became part of Christendom, that it became a program, you know, programmatic, and they shuttled all those things in the programs. But up until that time, they took care of orphans. They took care of the sick. They took care of the blind. They, personally, 
because they believed that ministering to them was ministering to Jesus. Wow, how far have we come, church? I just want to write a check once in a while because it's a lot cleaner, it's a lot simpler, it's a lot less messy, right? But sometimes God gives us opportunity to go. Yesterday, a bunch of us went to our uh, life community group, had an opportunity to go to a place of promise. And uh, place of promise, and I know we're holding a sign for sin there on the bottom left. Uh, that was part of the skit, right, Abe? That was a skit, right? We weren't trying to sin. At least we weren't celebrating sin. It was part of a, a, a skit, um, you know, a drama that we were putting on, the, the youth were putting on. And they were putting it on right here. This is the bottom right. And, uh, and so, sang a song, served lunch that we made, uh, uh, you know, for them. Um, and so it's opportunities for us to minister and to care for those who are to be Jesus to us. In the testimony time, bless you, in the testimony time, one of the um, folks in the left there, um, Donnie shared his testimony on how he had received Christ when he was young, but he had fallen into addiction. And how for many years he had worshipped and been addicted to crack cocaine. And how, you know, only through a program like this, uh, Beth, and, and this place of promise was he being rescued out of that. And we had an opportunity to just meet this guy. And I said, what is it like for us to meet and care for people like that. I would suggest that we can be like Beth. Beth is uh, my new hero. I mean, I've met her a couple times. I didn't understand her story until we went there. And then um, as we were preparing for this message, I got to understand more of the history of uh, A Place of Promise. She is a, a, a saint. She, she, it's on the internet, her testimony. But basically, she spent 20 years as a neighborhood nurse in Roxbury. And as a neighborhood nurse in Roxbury, she would oftentimes invite people into her home who were, you know, really struggling with things. And then, but after 20 years, she was burnt out. She was just burnt out of, of what she was doing there in Roxbury. And she lived there. And what happened is that she took this time of fasting. And in this time of fasting, at the end of the fast, um, she says that she had this vision of Jesus um, and, and her heart was broken in his hands. And she was, he was holding his broken, her broken heart because she was just so empty after 20 years of ministry. And basically, Jesus took that and his, his blood started filling her heart. And it became bigger and bigger and bigger. And her heart got bigger. And she didn't understand what that meant. And then she... Another part of the vision came that her eyes started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So she had this giant heart that she didn't know what to do with. And she had this giant eye that she didn't know what to do with. And so she didn't understand until God told her that this is what it means. It means that I'm giving you a bigger heart and a bigger vision of what I want you to do. And that you're going to be a part of what God is doing in a bigger way in terms of the body of Christ. And so put this big heart and the big eyes in the big body of Christ. And so thus was born a place of promise. So instead of trying to take care of individuals by herself, now she's been called to God to now buy one, two, three, four, five houses. And she houses these folks who are, you know, involved in addiction and recovery. 
and she's sponsoring not just by herself, but now she you know, um, partners with various Christians and ministries around New England and the world to do this together. So it's a bigger church together. Maybe God is going to call us, or you as an individual, to have a big heart and a big vision. The interesting thing is that Beth didn't start out with the program. I was thinking for the last 15 years, we need to figure out a program. I don't think it starts with the program. I think it starts with us being good neighbors. Us serving, having relationship, and beginning to treat our neighbors like kin. And that God will, over time, reveal to each of us how he wants us to minister the least of these. Let's pray. Father, we come and we recognize that uh, we can be overwhelmed with the needs of even our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can be overwhelmed with thinking about ministering to the immediate neighbors that we have, never mind the least of these and the great needs that are out there. But Father, we thank you that you are the one who fills us. You are the one who came into our neighborhood, as it were, in Christ Jesus. That we are not doing this by ourselves. You are the greatest neighbor. You come alongside your Emmanuel to us. Fill us that we might know that you're here with us. That you're kin to us. We're kin to you. And thus we can be kin and family to others. Pour out your spirit, we pray as we desire to be great neighbors. Help us to look at these, our little charts in our hands, and begin to pray, begin to press in, begin to be those who extend hospitality in our neighborhoods, in the places where we live and work. We pray this in Jesus. Amen.